Hey everyone, just Caitlin here today to make our announcement. The long-awaited season three is just around the corner. It premieres on September 13th, so just under a month from now. And so we wanted to announce what the topic would be, and we have a super fun way to ring in this new season. Today, you'll get to hear an interview with a retired NYPD detective, because season three will be true crime. I am so excited for this season, and I know Erica's going to enjoy it, too. Now, it's just me on this interview because Erica wasn't available at the time we recorded it, but I assure you that Detective Ferrari has plenty of interesting things to say. Alrighty, I'll shut up now and let you listen to the interview. We hope you enjoy, and don't forget to tune back in on September 13th for episode one of season three. Welcome to Mysterious-ish, the podcast about, you know, a little bit of everything. And today we are going to actually have a guest star on. Uh, His name is Vic Ferrari. So Vic, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired New York City police detective. I did 20, I had a 20 year career with the New York City Police Department. Um, I grew up in the Bronx, Bronx kid, went to Catholic high school. After a 20 year career with the New York City Police Department, I was bored out of my mind and I said, I should really do something with myself. And uh, my friends started telling me, you've got all these amazing stories from your, your police career. You should write them down. And I was a little apprehensive at first to do that. But I started stringing these stories together and I put out one book and the reception was great. And I put out another book and it just kind of blossomed after six books, four of which are about the New York City Police Department. I've kind of turned it into a career for myself. Yeah, I have looked at some of your books and I'm probably going to purchase some of them because they looked they looked pretty interesting. Thank you very much. I've watched some other interviews with you, too, and you're pretty funny. You're a pretty funny guy. Uh, so Appreciate what made you decide to go down the law enforcement path? Well, growing up, the thing is, like, I always wanted to be a police officer. When I was about five years old, my grandfather broke his leg in a snowstorm and these two cops brought him home. And, you know, I'm five years old and I see these two guys in these blue uniforms with the gold buttons. And of course, every boy gravitates to the gun. And I'm like, who are these guys? Where are they from? What do they eat? Like, what, what makes them tick? And then a couple of years later, my mom used to take my brother and I to the movie theater and around the corner was the police station. So walking past the police station for me was a bigger deal than going to the movie. And I would run up to the blue and white police cars and stick my head in the window and look around and look at the nightsticks and the hats and saying to myself, one day I'm going to be driving in one of them things, chasing the bad guy. And uh, then by about 10, my friends and I used to go into the post office and steal the wanted posters off the wall, like the FBI (laughs) wanted posters. We were walking around the Bronx with like these wanted posters of some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Louisiana, like walking up to people with like, you know, looking at pieces of paper, like that could be him, you know? So I knew what I wanted to do. Um, The Catholic high school I went to was like a, it was like a cop factory. It's like Penn State is no, is notorious for producing uh, linebackers for the NFL. The same thing with my old high school, that it was just it was a civil service factory, and most of it went to the police department. Like my graduating class of two hundred and fifty boys, probably forty guys became cops. Oh wow! So it, it yeah, it was like the Irish and the Italian mafia. So we just kind of went into the police department and and for decades it was like that. So, I mean, that, that's how I got my start. Well, cool. I think as far as, you know, law enforcement, I think it requires a lot of 
passion and drive to do it much like, I mean, I told you I was a teacher. I think it just requires a lot of, you have to want to do it, like really, really want to do it. <laughs> so that's cool. Well, you would hope, I mean, there were cops in there that I saw that just, um, I enjoyed my career. I live for it. I love catching the bad guy. I like trying to outthink criminals. I like getting into car chases, but there is a percentage of law enforcement that they're report takers. They're not very proactive. They kind of hide. They'll kind of mm -hmm. stay in the station house. We call them house mouses or palace <laughs> guards. And what they'll do, what's dangerous about them is they'll study for the civil service exams and get promoted along the way, despite not having any experience managing people, talking to people, um, knowing what to do when the shit hits the fan. Right. Well, sorry, I keep bumping my mic down here. You're fine. So um, what was the most prevalent crime that you uh, encountered in New York City? Well, I, I was in auto theft for a vast majority of my career. So in the early 90s, the New York City police, the New York City area, the five boroughs of New York averaged 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. Ooh, so, wow. Yeah. So it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, mm. you ride around with a computer car, just running a couple of plates. You, you were going to be in a car chase. It was it was that much. And uh I said, you know, I could make a living doing this. I mean, I, I was locking people up with guns and drugs, but I liked the car theft aspect of, of, of policing. And uh, I basically became an expert in it. And then I went to like the major leagues, the NYPD's auto crime division, where I was a detective my last 10 years. And we investigated chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers on cars for resale, mafia-owned junkyards and body shops. So we were kind of going after the head of the snake. We would pick off like the garden variety pain in the ass car thieves, but our mission was to go after the, 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 the big, big guys. guys. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, one of your books is titled Grand Theft Auto, wasn't it? Yeah, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. That that basically spells out. Uh, it's everything you want to know about the stolen car industry. It's schemes, what happens to your car after it's stolen, why it's stolen, who steals your car, a car thief's mindset. Um, it, it, it teach. It also there's a couple of chapters in there teaching you what to look for when purchasing a stolen car so you don't get screwed. So it, it's a, it's very informative. Anything about the car theft industry? Huh. That's interesting. Maybe I'll give that one a look. Thank you. Um, so what advice might you have to anyone who might be trying to pursue the specifically detective work with the rise in, you know, true crime and true crime enthusiasts? Well, if you if you're a rookie cop and you're just starting out, don't be afraid to get involved in things that there's, you know, some cops will become, you know, they become, like I said earlier, they become cops, but they're report takers always want to take that next step, L learn your craft, learn, you know, talk to criminals. Like after it's over, you got the cuffs on them and anything. don't take it personal, talk to them. Sometimes they'll give you a different di additional information that'll lead to something bigger or better. Or the next time they get busted, they'll ask for you because they trust you. Oh. You know, I was not, we worked with confidential informants quite a bit. I didn't necessarily like doing it because it's a slippery slope dealing with these people. But at the end of the day, you need them sometimes to get you into what you're trying to figure out. Um, don't take it so personal with the criminals. You know, when, when it's over, talk to them. Sometimes you can get a lot out of them that, that'll help you along your career. 
Okay. That's, that's interesting. I never would have thought of, you know, talking to the people that you're arresting. <laughs> um, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying invite them over for dinner. Right. <laughs> or, or give them your home phone number. Or, yeah. My kid goes to school over there, but at the same time, go look, man, it's over. You know, you're going to act like a gentleman, you know, you want a soda, you know what I mean? Sometimes, I mean, a lot of times it, all it took was a soda or a candy bar or, or just give me a second. You got to use the bathroom. Okay. You know, I, I've also seen it the other way where, you know, cops treat the criminal. I'm not saying bad, but just it, it, it's so stoic that it's, it's, it, he's going to go from the radio car to the precinct down to court and that's it. Talk to him. You might get something. Right. Sometimes they give up the competition. I've had that happen where <laughs> you lock up a guy that's stealing cars that he's like, he knows he's going to get out, but there's another guy that that's owes him money or they'll, they'll give up their competition. Yeah. I listen to quite a lot of true crime podcasts and I hear about that. Sometimes some people right. give up, give up other people for, to get a lesser deal or whatever. Um, what was your favorite part of being a detective? Well, I, I being in the auto crime division because I worked on such interesting cases. So like for argument's sake, one case I worked on, uh, we had Chinese nationals in Brooklyn. They were shipping 30 stolen Audi A6s a month out of the country. Wow. So you had the agents that had a warehouse in Brooklyn. They were accepting these stolen vehicles. What they would do is uh, you had you had a Chinese guy that was running the whole operation. He had a Jamaican middleman from the Bronx. The Jamaican middleman from the Bronx had steel teams. So the Asian guy would pay the Jamaican five thousand an Audi. The Jamaican would pay the car thieves five hundred bucks a car. They would steal these cars. They'd bring them out to Brooklyn. They would go into a warehouse. Inside the warehouse were shipping containers. They would put two. They would drive two stolen Audis per container. They would let the air out of the tires so the car would sit lower in the container. Then they would build a wood frame above the two cars to drive two more in there to get three to four cars per container. They wanted to get a lot of bang for their buck. Then what they would do is the, the, the shipping container with the three or four stolen cars in it would get trucked out to Newark. They would put on trains. They would be railed across the country to uh, Long Beach, California, where they were put on ships and they were getting shipped to uh, Shanghai. So while we were involved in this international car theft ring, we had multiple wiretaps. So we had wiretaps on the Asian phones. We needed Chinese cops and detectives to, to, to minimize and, and transcribe the phone call. We had the car thieves phones tapped. And what we realized is with the car thieves, we, we quickly realized they were in the murder for hire business. So we're like, oh, oh. Shit, not only are these guys. <laughs> yeah. So they were talking. Yeah. Remember, I killed this guy and I killed that guy. So. When we took that case down, there was a there was a guy in the center of that case, this guy, Mario Lopez. And Mario was the getaway driver for several of these homicides. So we went right to him and he goes, you got me. And he knew he was going. He knew he was going to get at least 10 years for the car theft case. But he also knew, you know, if, if I go along with you for a murder and I drive the car, I'm just as guilty as you was for pulling the trigger. So Mario knew he had problems. Mario started singing like a bird. And uh, we saw we Fausto was convicted on three or four homicides, but we know he probably did 13 or 14. Right. Wow. But as a result of that, we locked up multiple people for homicide. Wow. That was a a nice accident. Happy accident and stumbling upon. Wow. <laughs> 
We used, well, we used to say, you never know what you're going to get when you go up on a wiretap. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know what you got to get to get the wiretap. To, to get a wiretap is difficult. You have to have probable cause. You have to have a district attorney draw up like a search. It's basically like a search warrant to access someone's phone. Then a judge reads through it and says, well, this, this and this is going on. And you suspect this person of being involved in this because this and this. OK, I'm going to give you 30 days. You get 30 days or I forget what it is now. I'm out of it 15 years. But say it's 30 days. And then after 30 days, you got to go back to court and say, yes, these phone calls, you know, they're providing information. We've gotten this, this and this. And they'll they'll re-up it. It's not like a blank check to to monitor everybody's phone. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think some people just think that everybody's monitoring everybody's phones and... (laughs) Well, the government's a different story. That I don't know. I never worked for the federal government. I know like our restrictions with the New York City Police Department. Mm-hmm, right. Um, so I asked what was your favorite part? What was your least favorite part? I got a couple of least favorite parts. So in <laughs> New York City, early on in your career, right? I mean, when you're a rookie cop in the New York City Police Department, well, let me let me back up. New York City Police Department at any given time has between 35,000 and 40,000 members. So wow. that's like a large crowd at Yankee Stadium during a playoff game, right? Mm-hmm. So- in the five boroughs of New York, you have 77 police stations. Each police station has between 100 to 500 members in there. And that's, I'm not even including specialized units. That's just the precincts, the grunts, the cops. And when you're a rookie cop and you get assigned to a precinct, it's like you were dropped off from space and you're an alien. No one talks to you. They feel you out. It's like being in, it's like being the new kid in school. Like you move from Arizona to Texas and you go to a new school. Like everybody's just kind of looking you up and down. They want to see if you're a know-it-all, if you're a big mouth, if you're a pain in the ass. So no, it takes a while for the other cops to warm up to you. So it's, it's like an awkward like teen social. That goes on for a while. <laughs> and when you're a rookie cop in a precinct, you get all the shitty assignments. It's like you're not seeing the inside of a police car for a while. And you get the DOA. So in New York City, I mean, with nine million people packed into five boroughs, people die. And so you'll get, you know, the super tells, you know, calls the police. Mrs. Johnson is 96 years old. I haven't seen her in two weeks. You get access to the apartment. and Poor Mrs. Johnson's been dead in that bed for two weeks. The apartment has death in it. it. It's the worst smell you could ever imagine. And an old timer sergeant's going to throw you a pair of latex gloves and goes, go search Mrs. Johnson or go search Mr. Johnson. And if they're wearing pants, you got to go through their pockets to see if they have money, identification, jewelry. And sometimes these people have been dead for a while. And when people die, you have gases in your body. So mm. you got to I quickly <laughs> learned you got to throw a sheet over Mrs. Johnson and kind of just kind of give the body like a rock, a shove and get out of there because the body's <laughs> going to pop. Not explode, but it kind of oozes out like a gas. And then, I mean, it's it's the worst thing in the world. But as a result of that, you learn little tricks of the trade. So if the, if it's obvious that it's a natural death and not a crime scene where you don't touch anything, the old timers taught me you take a pot, you pour coffee grinds in the pot, you burn the pot on the, on the stove. That'll permeate the apartment with coffee grinds, which will mask the smell of death. Also, I learned to carry a little thing of Vicks menthol, which I absolutely hate because my mother used to put that crap on my chest when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You put a little of that under your nose, 
you're smelling that. You're not smelling a DOA. So I hated, I mean, if that's, I know I'm giving you a roundabout answer, but that's what I hated being a rookie cop that you just got all the shitty assignments. And then at the end of my career, I'm in my early 40s, and I know how the game is played. I, I know the police department backward and forward. What I despised was having to deal with sergeants that were 25, 26 years old with no life experience that passed a series of tests with no life experience telling us what to do. Because oh. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Like, you know, that's not going to work. But, you know, that. so I saw things on both ends of the spectrum, not knowing anything to knowing too much. Right. Yeah. Um, that little hazing period, sort of, when you first get there. <laughs> Oh, there was plenty. Oh, they used to mess with us all the time. So I'll tell you, I'm hazing. I'll tell you a quick story. So in New York City, when you're, when you're in a radio car, when you start your shift, you're supposed to toss the car. When I say toss, I mean search it because you never know who was in that back seat the tour before. You take the back seat out. You look at it. You look under the seats. You make sure there's no contraband in there. Mm-hmm. Right. I had just done an eight to four. I passed the car off to the four to 12 shift. I got changed. I'm walking through the park a lot. And there's two old timers. And one goes, hey, Ferrari, come here. So I walk over and I go, what's up? And he goes, um, you had, you know, police car 2306. I go, yeah. He goes, did you toss the back seat? And I didn't remember if I did or I didn't. I go, why? And he had like this many stacks of paper in his head. It looked like a bundle of heroin. Heroin <gasps> in New York is sold in glass scenes. They're tiny little uh, pieces of paper. A bundle is 10. So he had like a a bundle of 10 decks of heroin. And I went, oh, shit. He goes, what do you think we should do with this? And I said, oh, shit. Because I was on probation. I said, I, I guess I'm going to have to vouch for that. And I've got a lot of explaining to do. And he took it and he flicked it in my face. And it was just paper. And he goes, <sighs> next time, search the car. So I, I guess what, my part, what it was is my partner had tossed a coffee cup back there. And this guy was a clean freak, so it pissed him off. So he looked oh. and saw who the part was. I signed for it. He should have flicked it in my partner's face, but I ultimately got it. So there was, there was a hazing period with things <laughs> like that, practical jokes and things. Right. Oh, man. Um, is there anything that you miss about the force? Oh, yeah. I miss the excitement. I mean, God. I miss the car chases. I was in probably over a hundred car chases. I miss that. I miss the adrenaline of jumping out of a car and chasing somebody. I miss the adrenaline of following somebody, laying back a couple of car lanes behind, hoping they don't see me. You know, waking up at the crack of dawn and sitting on someone's house to watch them where they're going. I, I miss things like that. Um, I don't miss. I, I don't miss having to work every New Year's Eve in Times Square in uniform. Yeah. I don't miss working West Indian Day Parade, which is an organized riot in Brooklyn every year. You know, I don't miss them throwing us in uniform and you're, and you're dying. You're just sweating with a bulletproof vest somewhere. That I don't miss. Would I go back and do it all over again if things were the same? Yeah, I would. If there was mm-hmm. a time machine and I could do everything the same, I would. But, you know, now if they ask me, hey, we'll hire you back, there's no freaking way. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> times have changed and I'm an old man, so... And it's a young man's game. It really is. I mean, your reflex is slow. You're not as flexible as you are. I'd probably tear my Achilles jumping out of a car to chase <laughs> Well, yeah, times are definitely changing. You got that right. Um, so you just mentioned the car chases and like chasing uh, perps and everything. Did you, yeah. on like a weekly basis, how many times a week did you have to chase someone in your car or on foot? 
It, 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 you know, sometimes it would be it, a month would go by and nothing. And sometimes it could be three times in a week. You, you know what I mean? So Big range. It, just, it just depended. I mean, we were very proactive. We rode around. when We weren't doing cases. We were picking off the garden variety car thieves. And like there'd be a computer in the car. My partner usually drove. And I just would, you know, look for things with cars, you know, um, there's ways to spot stolen cars. Like if you get a flat tire and in the back, in the trunk of your car, there's that little crappy balloon tire that mm -hmm. you put on. That's only supposed to be good for 40 miles, but people drive it for 500. You see that <laughs> on a brand new car. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's things like that broken vent windows. The plate is hanging on by one bolt. Um, uh, I, I locked up two guys one time. They were driving around the Bronx. There was no damage to the front of the car and the airbags were missing. They stole, oh, the air, they stole the car. They took the airbags out and they were driving around with no airbags, with no damage to the car. I, I got into a car chase one time in Hunts Point section of the Bronx, which is where all the body shops and glass places were, junkyard. Two guys drove by me in a Toyota, uh, Toyota Celica and there was no glass in the car. They drove by. There's no windshield, no back window. No, They stole the car and they were selling it piecemeal to the body shop. Oh my so it was gosh. like shit like that is funny. It looked like a clown car. I, I, <laughs> I've, I've seen guys drive by me with no doors, dumping a stolen car like they would drive a steal, we call it a steal, a stolen car out of a junkyard. You'd see them drive by with no doors, no seats, and they'd be on a milk crate driving the car with a set of ice grips. So shit like that I miss because it's just so funny. It's ridiculous. Right. How did but, they think they were going to get away with that? <laughs> well, they weren't going far. You know what I mean? They would drive it in front of the competition's body shop. You know what I mean? They, mm -hmm. they throw the cops on their trail. Oh, man. Uh, this is kind of a <clears throat> maybe a uh, who's lying and or who's buried in Grant's grave question, but um, did you ever have like hostile or unco uncooperative perpetrators? Oh, yeah, all the time. Oh, what, yeah, like, listen, not everybody, that's what the public doesn't understand. Like, not everybody just puts their hands behind their back and is willing just to go cooperatively. <laughs> People fight. I mean, I was in a couple of situations where, you know, I was just telling this on another podcast, I was in a couple, a handful, not many, but a couple where it was me and another perp struggling with a gun. I had a hold of the bad guy's gun. And I mean, it's amazing when your adrenaline kicks in. It's like you've almost been in a car accident and your mind slows down. You, your mind speeds up so quickly, like you're processing information. Like I might have to go to the hospital. Who's going to pick up my kid in that split second? Mm -hmm. It's all this is happening. When you're fighting with somebody for your life, which happened to me a handful of times, you're like, I can't lose. Like, it's one thing to be in a fight with somebody. This is, I don't care if I get a hernia or get my teeth knocked out. If this gun gets out of my hand, this guy's going to shoot me. Yeah. So you're just kind of, I mean, you're just using everything you have. This is in the early 90s. One time, it was a Saturday morning. I'll never forget. My partner and I, it was like, I don't know, like 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning. My partner pulled this guy over for a taillight or something on Broadway. Guy's been out clubbing all night. You could tell he's like in, in club clothes. You know, he smells like cologne. It's eight o'clock in the morning. He's like, he looks coked out of his mind. And uh, I keep seeing him fidgeting in the front seat. And he's like, well, would you pull me over for it? I said, you got a taillight. I go, let me show you. So he got out of the car and I seen him go like this. And as we were going to the car, I could see he had, he had, he had a gun in his waist. So I just reached into, I just reached into his waist and I felt it. And I'm yelling from uh, my partner's on the other side of his car. And I'm like, gun, gun, gun. He comes running over. 
And he goes, are you sure? And I go, shoot him. <laughs> like, me and this guy are fighting for this gun. And I'm like, shoot him. He goes, are you sure? I go, shoot him. And he just took his gun and gave him a crack in the head. And <laughs> the guy just kind of slumped. And I pulled, I think it was a nine millimeter out of his waist. So, I mean, he was going to shoot me. Yeah, you know that's what I mean? scary. It was like he was, oh, yeah. So, I mean, people don't realize, like, things can get real hairy, real ugly, real quickly. Yeah, no kidding. What were your like like strategies for like if you're interrogating someone and you can't get any like info out of them? Did you interrogate people very often? Oh yeah, well it's a, it's an interview. It's not the you know the interrogate. Well. If someone tells you to fuck off or I want a lawyer, that's it. I, right. You know it's it's game over when they say I want a lawyer. That's it. You know it's like they you know they've exercised that right and that's it. Um, I've had guys that are on the fence. They really don't know what they want to do. And I'm like, basically what I would do, the thing I learned very early in life with talking to prisoners and, and witnesses, it's like, don't bluff. Because if you bluff and they know you're bluffing, you, you've lost total credibility with this guy. He doesn't trust you to begin with. And now you're giving him a reason not to trust you. So I go in honest and I'd lay my cards on the table. Listen, I got this, this, and this. You're screwed. And I would always like before I went in there, I would try to know what his criminal record would look like. And I knew the sentencing guidelines and I would tell him, listen, you're looking at 10 years. You know, if you want to roll the dice and take this to trial, I said, you know, you know, have at it. You know, I, I would just always be honest with them and just explain the consequences. And sometimes they would believe you. And sometimes, you know, they would tell you, tell them to kiss your kiss their ass. You know, it just depended. Right. <laughs> I think you're uh, probably better at that than me. Once people start telling me to fuck off, I get <laughs> real mad, <laughs> real mad. You can't take it. Well, no, you can't take it personal because you're going to be at the end of the day, it's going to eat at you. Right. If you know, you just, yeah, don't get me wrong. It's a slap in the face. It's not <laughs> like it didn't affect me. It's not like, you know, I'm that, you know, callous, but I'm like, all right, well, and I would also tell him, look, you do what you do. I do what I do. You've got it. You know, this is how you may earn a living. I don't agree with it. This is how I earn my life. My job is to catch you. I caught you. So, you know, if you want to stay in jail and you accept that as part of your job that you got to do time or an overhead, you know, have at it. But if you want to help yourself and cooperate, I can get you to a district attorney and maybe we can work something out. Mm -hmm. um, what was your most difficult investigation? I, I difficult i mean they're all difficult but i'll tell you a wild one got a phone call one day from a retired detective who was head of security at mercedes-benz and he says we got a situation down here and i says what's that he goes a guy came in with a car the vehicle identification number made no sense to the mechanics because you know they wanted to do a history on the car he goes so they reached out to deutschland and the germans keep impeccable records Germany, Mercedes-Benz in Germany told them that car was made for France. That car was manufactured and sent to France and it was stolen in a home invasion. In France? So I, in France. And I'm like, well, how did a fucking car wind up in Manhattan <laughs> in a Mercedes dealership, right? So I said, all right. I says, you know, I says, is the car there now? And he goes, he goes, no, the guy left. I says, can you have him? I says, well, when's his next appointment? He goes, he's coming back next week. I said, okay, fine. 
I says, what I'll do is, I says, I'll wait outside and we'll pick him off while he's, we'll pick him off before he goes into the dealership. And he gave me the license plate and I ran the license plate through 50 states and it didn't come back to anything. So I'm like, they either got the wrong plate or something's not right. So what I do is my partner, and I get bright up, bright and early, we're waiting for this guy and it's got diplomatic plates. I'm like, oh shit, they're diplomats. You know, you got the UN in New York. So like that kind of changes things, right? So we don't pounce on him. We watch him bring the car in. It's this skinny guy. He looked like um, he looked like the the, um, the bass player for U2, Adam Clayton, and skinny wire and glasses, right? And he's with this really attractive. He was like in his forties with this really attractive female who was pregnant with a short skirt and a, a chinchilla pelt coat. So we're watching him, right? And they leave. So then I go to the mechanics and I'm looking at the car and I'm writing down the VIN numbers and everything. And I says, listen, I can't arrest a diplomat. I don't even know if he is a diplomat. I don't know if he just works for the consulate. I said, this is going to take some phone calls. I go, give him the car back. Don't say a word. I'll get to the bottom of it. So long story short, this is after 9-11. We had detectives and, and cops working in Europe doing terrorism stuff. So... I reached out. There was an NYPD sergeant working in France. I said, listen, I need to know, is this car really stolen? What's the story with it? He gets back to me within a couple of weeks and tells me car was stolen in a home invasion. Um, the insurance company owns the car. They want it back. I says, OK, so now I know the car is stolen. Mm-hmm. How did it get into the United States? I go through shipping records. The car was shipped from Cotivar, which is an a-, a country in Africa which is known for like diamond smuggling and stuff was shipped. So somehow the car was stolen in France, wound up in Africa, and now was shipped to the United States in, in a, uh, uh, a diplomatic shipping container. But here's the kicker. The car is registered to the Venatu, an island in the South Pacific. It's, <laughs> it's part of their delegate. Yeah, it, it was crazy. So I'm like, but the car is stolen in France comes from Africa to the United States, but it belongs to Venatu. And they go, yeah. So now I got to go through the State Department. State Department says, says the guy I saw is not a diplomat, but he has somewhat diplomatic immunity. His wife is a diplomat and he's married to her. He's British. So I said, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a key cut from Mercedes Benz. I'm going to hang out by that Venatu mission and I'm going to steal their car back because I can't (laughs) arrest them. But I'm sure as shit, I'm going to swipe their car, right? He goes, oh, don't do that. Please, please don't. And my lieutenant was like, yeah, fucking do it. And I go, he goes, please, you're going to cause an international incident. So the State Department rep told me, this is what we're going to do. He goes, I'll bring her in. I'll explain to her the situation. He goes, there's only like three diplomats from Vanatu in the United States. He goes, she's not going to want to have any problems. He goes, I'm 90% sure she's going to say, this is an incredible mistake. Take the car. I said, all right. We set up an interview. The woman shows up and it's not the woman in the chinchilla pelt, the pregnant woman, the good looking woman in the chinchilla pelt. Oh, it's, no. It's woman. And I'm like, I'm talking to her and she goes, my husband brought the car over from Africa. He does business over there. I know nothing about this, but here, take the car. I go, is your husband around? She goes, unfortunately, he's out of the country. I'm like, sure, of course he is. Right. I says, OK, no problem. I take the car back. Right. I can't arrest anybody, but I get this car back stolen from France. It was like an $80,000 Mercedes. So uh, I think nothing of it. About a month later, one of the detectives in my office goes, there's some guy with an English accent yelling and screaming. He wants to talk to you, right? So I get on the phone and it's the guy. 
It's oh. the husband. And he goes, he goes, you had no right to take that car and blah, 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 blah. And I'm saying to myself, I know what this is. The wife is asking him, what the hell is going on with this? So he's pounding his chest on the phone. He's putting on a show for the wife. Right. And he's like, you had no right. I'm going to contact my attorney. I'm like, I says, it's funny. We, you could have been down there that day to settle all this. And you were out of the country. And he was yelling, screaming. I go, let me ask you something else. I go, I said, did your girlfriend have the kid? And he goes, what? I said, yeah, the pregnant girl, in the chinchilla coat. I says, you know who I'm talking about. The one in the Mercedes dealership you brought to get the car fixed. You could have heard a pin drop. He goes, thank you, detective. And he hung up the phone. I never heard another thing from him. Oh my gosh! Called him out for his mistress, and he didn't like that. <laughs> Got right. He could have never heard another thing. Well, I mean, that's one way to do it. <laughs> I pulled Dumbass. over a guy. This is in this is in one of my books. Uh, I pulled over a guy in the Hunts Point section of the Bronx. That's a very industrial area, but at night it becomes just it's it's all prostitution down there, and you have pimps and prostitutes, and the Johns come by. HBO did a couple of series on it like 30 years ago. It was called Pimps and Hoes of Hunts Point or something. It was, it was a document. You could look it up. Um, anyway, I see this BMW breezing through there. I don't know what I forget. Did he go through a stop sign or head tail? I don't remember. I pull the guy over and he's an attorney and he's just laying into me. I know what you're doing. You're shaking the trees. You saw a Mercedes or BMW in this neighborhood. And I'm uh-huh. And he's got a prostitute in the car and he's getting oh. mouthy. And I also see he's got a wedding ring. I said, okay, give me a paperwork. We go back to the car. My partner and I are laughing. I write him a ticket. I come back and he's like, I'm going to make a civilian complaint on you tomorrow. This, he goes, this is an abuse of authority. I said, no, no, I'm going to show you an abuse of authority. Get the fuck out of the car. So he gets out. The prostitute gets out. While I'm tearing into him, my partner starts writing down the prostitute's information, name, date of birth, pimp, phone number. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. I says, the second you drop a civilian complaint on me, I says, I'm going up to your house in Scarsdale. I'm going to call your wife in Scarsdale and I'm going to tell her where you got this ticket and who you were with. I says, if your phone isn't listed or I can't get a hold of you, I says, I will drive this crackhead up to Scarsdale and I'll tell with a photocopy of this ticket and I'm going to explain to her what happened. He got on his, it was raining out. He got on his knees and he was, please, please, no. And I go, I guess we understand each other. I didn't even go to traffic court for that one. Like he just, he wanted nothing more to do with me at that point. <laughs> he just paid the ticket and said, fuck it. Just, oh my gosh. That's funny. That's funny. Ooh. Um, let's see, where am I? Oh, being a former detective. What is something about like a person that you might notice that I might not? As far as if they're being deceptive? like personality traits or yeah, if they're being deceptive or sketchy or. Well, okay. So if, if you're asking somebody a question, like you told me you're a teacher. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you're asking somebody a question, right. And something's up and they keep repeating your question, they're buying time. So if you say, you know, like Ethan, where's your pencil box? And he says, where's my pencil box? Like, you know, every, as they start repeating every question with a question, they're lying. They're, they're, they're buying time. Right. Also, when someone's nervous, their, their foot starts going, their foot starts tapping. You know, if you see somebody, they're just sitting there and then you start asking them questions and, and they look like they're doing Morris code or, or, or the telegraph with their leg, dot dash, dot dash. Their, their leg is like, 
going 100, their knee is going 100 miles an hour, you're on to something, you know, or, you know, they start with the hands, with the start, you know, clenched fists, sitting up, like, like I'm having fun doing this with you. I'm just, I got my arms back, you know what I mean? Mm. This is fun. When, when something is unpleasant for someone, we tend to, we, we tend to, we tend to pull it in. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of body language stuff that you can pick up on that other people might not. I think anybody could pick up on it. It's just, it's just repetition doing it over and over and over again. Um, you know, I mean, a, a lot of times, like we would catch somebody and like you, you weren't sure, like that case I was telling you about when the cars were being shipped to China, that case got blown wide open because a low jack or tracking device went off in that warehouse and the precinct cops who didn't know what was going on basically ran in there and blew the case up. So you had people scattering and some of the Asians that were working in the warehouse, they had plane tickets, they were leaving the country and we knew what block they lived on, but we didn't know their address. And we were circling the block because they we knew they were going to be out of the country shortly. And my partner says, hey, there goes two Chinese guys with suitcases. And it was an Italian neighborhood. I slammed on the brakes. We got out of the car and we started talking to him. And I put my hand over the guy's chest and it felt like he was having a heart attack. I'm like, dude, you want me to call you an ambulance? And it was them. The guy had, t- uh, they had plane tickets to Toronto in their front pocket. Like it was like mission impossible. Like there was still food warm in that apartment when we got in there. Like they were out of there. You know? Oh my like, gosh. They were on a plane. They were getting out. Of, oh, this is an international thing. It wasn't just like mom and pop car. Right. Ring. Man. Uh, okay. Outside of, well, I guess outside or inside of car theft, what is the most ridiculous thing you've ever had to arrest someone for? Oh God. That's a really good question. Cause there's quite a few. Oh God. Oh, that, that I wasn't expecting that one. That's like getting punched <laughs> in the face because there's, there are so many ridiculous things. Um, well, there was one interview that I watched that sort of made me ask this question. I heard one of the interviews that you did, you talked about a certain animal fighting ring. Oh, yeah. Um, I was looking for stolen Vespas, those motor scooters. And I had noticed that some kid in the South Bronx had gotten arrested driving one of them. So I went to the neighborhood where he lived, figuring because there was like 10 of them missing. So I figured him and his friends stole them and they were bouncing around the neighborhood. So drove around the neighborhood for about a half hour. Didn't see anybody driving the stolen motor scooters. So I parked the car in the kid's block. And basically I went building to building, speaking to the superintendents of the building, saying, do you mind if I go into your basement and look in the common area where they store, people store their bicycles, extra garbage cans, snow blowers for the winter. And each super was like thrilled to show us this, their underground lair. The last place we went to, the super was a nervous wreck. He was dropping keys. He looked like Tattoo from Fantasy Island. And he had a big mop of hair. <laughs> and he was, he was shitting bricks. And um, he opened up the common area. And I look on the ground. And there's like 50 roosters and, and, and chickens just running around this underground thing. And then stacked on the walls were pods with, I guess, the fighting cocks. There, there had been another hundred roosters in pods. And I, I'm saying to myself, I know what this is. This is, this, this is like a, a, a training ground for cockfighting. And I had just gotten written. I had just gotten uh, read the uh, riot act from my Lieutenant who told me stick to auto crime. So I called my office. I got my sergeant on the phone. I'm like, listen, I just stumbled into a cockfighting ring. He goes, give it to the ASPCA. And I'm like, are you sure? He goes, yeah. So then a couple of weeks later, the ASPCA, ASPCA hits the place. And, uh, 
my sergeant makes the mistake of telling my lieutenant who he was a publicity on. He goes, why weren't we involved in this? I'm like, you told me to stick to auto crime. So yeah, you never <laughs> knew what you were going to stumble into on, in the NYPD. It was, um, it, it, it just ran the gamut of crime. Oh my gosh. I wouldn't know how to react in that situation. That would be, I'm a big animal person. So if I saw that, I would, I would d- definitely have said something to him. Well, they so. weren't fighting. Right. They weren't fighting. It was like, but it was like, you could tell what it was, you know, it was, um, it was funny. Like, and then for weeks, guys were putting like roosters and chickens and and, and things like, like on, on, on our deaths and stuff. And I'll tell you a quick story from one of the books. When I worked in the narcotics division, one of the teams, we worked in like an armory. So it was like a, a tremendous room with 50 or 60 desks. It was a dungeon where I worked in. And one of the teams, had gotten a couple of kilos. So the chief of narcotics was coming down for like a photo op and just to say congratulations. Well, that's going on because he had so many teams in there. Nobody really ever knew what the other team was doing. Two of the Spanish guys, two of the undercovers, and they, I still keep in touch with them. They went to a live poultry place and they brought a chicken into the office. Oh. And they opened up the guy's desk drawer and they put the chicken in the desk drawer and left it open a little bit. So when the guy opened it up, the chicken would come bouncing out and scare the shit out of him. So the sergeant goes, what the fuck are you doing? He goes, oh, we're going to scare Dan. He goes, the chief, the chief of narcotics is coming. If he sees a live chicken in here, he's going to have a shit fit. So he goes, get that fucking chicken out of here. So these two guys are going to the roof. He goes, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to throw He goes, I'll throw it off the roof. He goes, chickens can't fly. He goes, oh, shit. So someone goes, the chief's downstairs. So he sticks the chicken back in the desk and closes it, right? Oh, my so now gosh. You got a live chicken. I like Heads were going to roll if that chief saw that chicken come out, right? While that's going on, there was a guy in our office that used to put those snaps or loads in cigarettes that would make them explode when you smoked them. Oh, no. <laughs> so the whole office, everybody's cigarette was exploding in their face every five seconds, right? The chief comes in, he takes the photo op, and he looks at one of the detectives and he goes, can I bum a cigarette? <laughs> and it's like, oh, no. <laughs> And like the detective was in a no-win situation because he knew there was a pretty good chance one of the guys put a load in a cigarette. But if he told the chief no, he's playing career suicide. He goes, here you go. The chief's sitting there smoking this. So there's a chicken in a desk right next to the chief, and he's smoking a cigarette, which may or may not have a load in it. Thank God the cigarette goes down to the filter. It doesn't explode. The chief's about to leave. He asked the detective again. He goes, you mind if I bum another cigarette? Rolled the dice again, gave him another cigarette. But, you know, we don't know. The chief left with the cigarette. We don't know if he smoked it. We don't know if it didn't go off. We don't know if it did go off, but he just didn't decide. Not, but chances are nothing happened because those guys don't seem to have a sense of humor. So that's what my books are about, like the behind-the-scene crazy things that you would mm-hmm. never think that would go on in the New York City Police Department. Right, a lot of uh, pranking and funny jokes. and Constant. <laughs> I can understand why. I mean... <laughs> you guys have such a like heavy job. You sometimes you just gotta just relax a little bit. Definitely. Okay, I've got one more for you. And yeah. it's kind of it's kind of uh ridiculous, but I did it on purpose. <laughs> so I have seen the show Dexter. Have you seen Dexter about the serial killer? A few times. My cousin loved that show. Mm-hmm. So Deb Morgan, she is the main character's sister. Uh her whole goal throughout the entire show is to earn detective status. So she 
goes from very quickly. She goes from vice to homicide to detect or to yeah to detective to lieutenant very quickly throughout the eight seasons of this show. How how accurate is that? Not not at all. So <laughs> New York. All right. So New York City Police Department. Detective is a lateral move. To become mm-hmm. a detective, you have to work in an investigative unit for 18 months. And if all your evaluations and everything are fine, you get promoted to detective. To become sergeant, lieutenant, captain, it's a civil service test. So if you're a detective or a cop, you have to pass the sergeant's exam. You become a sergeant. After you're done with your probationary period and there's another test that's posted, you study, you take the next test, you go to lieutenant and so on and so forth. Um, they don't just take you as a detective. So I worked in auto crime, right? Mm-hmm. If there's one thing about the New York City Police Department that they do right, it's the homicide teams. So every precinct has a detective squad that investigates homicides. But over them, each borough, you have Bronx homicide, Brooklyn hom- Brooklyn North homicide, Brooklyn South, Queens homicide. But homicide is the most serious crime. They don't want those cases getting screwed up. So that's metal sharpens metal. You tend to have the best and the brightest in there. And I'm kind of biased because my old partner worked there for 20 years. He actually narrates. I'll give you a little uh, tip. Netflix has a, a, has a show called The Times Square Killer. It's called Crime Scene, The Times Square Killer. And my old partner is a, is a retired homicide detective, narrates that show. Oh. Um, she would not go from vice to homicide. No. If she wanted <laughs> I didn't to go to homicide... <laughs> No, no, because vice, vice, you're busting whorehouses and going after gambling, you know. It's and 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 in vice, no one really goes to jail. I mean, now they might with sex trafficking. Maybe some of those cases are going to trial. Vice is like we used to laugh. Like auto crime, a lot of things don't go to trial, but some things do. Vice, it's 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 harmless. You know, it, it's you know, no one's going to jail for gambling in New York, really. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, until you, human trafficking, you know, really became prevalent or uh, prominent. So, no, you would, have to, you would have to earn your bones in a robbery squad, a borough robbery squad, or a precinct detective squad and have multiple, multiple years of homicide investigative experience before they would – that's like going to the major leagues. Mm-hmm. That would be like pulling a kid out of high school and putting him – batting him fourth on the Yankees. It, 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 would, just, it, would, it would just fuck things up. Yeah. I don't think they, I don't think they ever showed her being Sergeant. I think she might have been captain at some point, but no, she, she just went real quickly up those ranks and I didn't think that was accurate. (laughs) Well, that's all I have. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to me for a little bit. Um, And our third season, which by the time this interview comes out, our listeners will know what the third season is. So season three will be true crime so i'm hoping if you'll uh be willing to come back we can have you on for absolutely a more relevant episode for you because i don't think any conspiracy theories <laughs> whatever you want to have me back i'm grateful to be on your show and, and like i said we were talking earlier i'll see if i can throw a couple of guests your way and no this was great and i appreciate it awesome well go ahead and uh plug yourself all your um social media your books where can we buy your books where can we find you? Yeah. 
My name is Vic Ferrari. If you go on Amazon, my police books are NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department, the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, NYPD Law and Disorder, uh, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, and I got a new book that'll be out probably by next month called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. All my books are on Amazon, all paperback or $10 and all $2.99 ebook download. And I'm on Instagram and, Twi and Twitter at VicFerrari50. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, we will be talking to you later then. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Mysterious Ish. All episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Follow us on social media at Mysterious Ish Pod. If you have topic suggestions, questions, or stories to share, you can email us at mysteriousishpod at gmail.com or visit our website at mysteriousishpod.com. Make sure to come back next week for another discussion about the mysteries of the universe.